listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I'll start off by apologizing for this incredibly sexy voice. Um, We have uh, little ones, and as much as a blessing as they are, they are little germ magnets, and um, uh, they really have a way of helping me recognize a deep humility when it comes to health. I have this this saying that, well, I'm indestructible. You know, are you okay? I'm indestructible, uh, which is, of course, a joke. Uh, but uh, my ba- baby girl comes home with the with the sniffles, and then the uh, three-year-old gets it, and then when the three-year-old gets it, then usually daddy gets it, and. Again, I'm convinced that females are the superior sex because I don't think my wife has ever gotten anything. Um, uh, but one of the one of the deals that uh, uh, we uh, we share in our house, one of those little sayings in our marriage, our marriage uh, tosses back and forth is uh, whenever something like an illness kind of comes into the house. We always say the line, well, get ready. Get ready for lots of stinging. And this may sound ridiculous, and indeed kind of is, but years ago, when we were first married, we were watching uh, uh, their Comcast was making it so you could do the, you could order it by just clicking a button. And I happen to be horrible at that, because I will always buy things I'm not intending to buy. Mm-hmm. And then I'm too cheap to, I mean, I'll watch it. If I buy it, I watch it. and. There was this uh, kids' movie called, I think it was The Other Side of the Hedge. Is that the other? You know? Okay. And uh, there is this scene. It's a very zen-like scene in an otherwise utterly non-zen children's film where these two uh, little animals recognize fully in the moment that major disaster, pain, is going to strike momentarily. It's uh, something like a, a you know, a, 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 I believe it's like flame is going to come bursting out of something, and they know they, they're going to get torched. And they, one looks at the other and says, well, get ready for lots of stinging. <laughs> and so when we, <laughs> when we have a sick baby, it's always, uh, get ready for lots of stinging even though it just applies to me, it seems. <laughs> that said, I think that it's a great line, getting ready for lots of stinging, whatever situation you might find yourself <coughs> in, where you can really just be alive when you know that the fan's going to get hit. 
can you be right there for it instead of trying to bail, trying to run away, trying to ditch, trying to avoid, trying to grab onto something else? Instead, can you just become very intimate with lots of stinging? As bizarre as it sounds, um, lots of physical or emotional discomfort when studied completely, fully, with your full attention, can act just as easily as a path to awakening as anything else. Most people don't have that kind of uh, strength, and they certainly don't have that kind of practice. And what we're trying to encourage here is that we actually develop that type of practice and with repeated lifting, so to speak, just like a weightlifter or an athlete going to work out again and again and again, we start to hone the skill of being able to stand right in the face of what we know will be lots of stinging. That's it. That's the work. All sorts of stuff arises out of that. I mean, it, but it's, that's, that's really the work. I had a situation where I went and visited my teacher who had, he'd had a horrible bike accident. He was in uh, Texas and he was giving a, a, you know, a retreat for, I believe it was a, a weekend, a weekend or week-long retreat, something like that. And the poor guy was riding along and uh, on his bike and then it, the, the tires got in a, worked into a groove and he was slammed over on one side. And I mean, I saw the x-rays, the guy busted the, uh, the ball off of the hip. So his femur right at the, right at the, 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 the hip joint was snapped. And he tried to walk, <laughs> tried to walk away from the accident. Anyway, watching him rehab this horrific injury, and he was very proud, actually, the, uh, the x-rays, too. So, Mike, look at this, look at this, you know. You know, everything was pinned together and so forth, and uh, watching him go through that experience was such an amazing teaching, because uh, for a guy who showed no physical, I, I never once saw uh, any type of physical discomfort I uh, never once saw much of, to be honest, much of anything. Uh, he was always just kind of in that, in that space. I finally was able to see this deeply human connection with all of that stinging. But he was ready for it. It became this amazing, amazing test for the Zen master to face excruciating physical pain for months. And watching him go through it was just, and I got to see it every day, you know, making his way down on this walker, making his way down to the zendo, you know, when he finally could walk again, putting his body into lotus. And you knew that this was just putting just amazing, amazing strength. And watching his face as he was doing that and then kind of settling in. Most of us will do whatever we can to avoid that. And I just want to encourage you, please allow yourself to face that. That's what grown-ups do. Grown-ups face the hurt. 
And I mean, that, before you start whining and thinking that that sounds really judgmental, okay? It's really a powerful, powerful teaching. Grown-ups can face the stinging. And that's what this is. This is about us literally stepping up into a place of resolve. And the minute we can step up into that place of resolve is the minute we are actually walking into, with conscious steps, walking into conscious living. A truly mature and evolved space that we can then share with others. So you ready for lots of stinging? Tighten up your practice a little bit tonight. See if you can uh, put a little, try not to be so comfortable maybe. Put yourself in uh, a little bit of uh, maybe a, a more upright posture. Put yourself, do, do whatever you need to do to kind of just tighten it up just a little bit. That can be a really neat thing to do every once in a while. Okay. the spiritual path usually came about for you because something felt like it wasn't quite right. I know this was very true for me in uh, college. Uh, I felt like I had everything but something was missing. You know, something was, wasn't there. Um, and no matter how much uh, experience I had or whatever, just something was missing. And it evolved, that, that sense of lack evolved into a very deep search. Uh, but it's fascinating how, much, fascinating how much people look at their situation as if something is deeply wrong and that that wrongness inspires the walk along the path. And with that in mind, I, I think I offered up some tweet or something this week. Uh, I was on Twitter and I said something along the lines of, you know, from the, from the awakened perspective, there's no need for healing. And that sparked kind of a, an interesting series of messages I got from people who have put an entire, you know, life's work into considering themselves healers and so forth, which I think is fine, you know, I think it's fine. From the unenlightened perspective, there needs to be a lot of healing. From the awakened perspective, on the other hand, we get into an entirely different realm where we are no longer talking about opposition. Nothing is in opposition to anything else. Everything is a conscious, perpetual recognition of a deep singularity as opposed to atomized division, like we're, how we're all separate people in this room. From the awakened perspective, we see that we are all separate people in this room, but that we are also radically interconnected, that we are all temporary 
expressions of the infinite. So the idea then that something needs to be healed from the perspective of the deep singularity, where in other words, where everything is one thing, is a distraction. From the awakened perspective, we're all just fine. From the awakened perspective, anything that is not fine, so to speak, inspires fineness. You start seeing, in other words, disasters in other parts of the world, and it inspires something in you to, to engage from an open place. We spoke a little bit about this in relationship to the Tucson uh, shooting. How, yeah, what a horrible thing. What a horrible thing. And then we begin with a little bit of patience and some deep breaths. We start seeing these amazing gifts that can unfold from disaster. With a little bit of patience and a little bit of breath, we can begin to see that anything in our life, actually, that is seen as particularly disastrous, our own internal massacre, if you will, okay, or a, uh, something horrible happens in our life, once we get past the judgment of horrible or not horrible, we can start seeing how it actually can inspire something in us. It inspires growth. That's, you know, the, the basis of that, that great saying, uh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Who the hell said that, by the way? Does anybody know? That's a good one. <laughs> Whoever it is is dead, yes. I would like everybody to take out their notebooks and give Robert a mark, a little star. Nice job. <laughs> I do think it's a, it's a powerful reminder that when we can begin to almost intuit that everything is working out perfectly, even when it's not, our ego, just to kind of clue you into this little, little uh, dialogue here, nothing is working out perfectly for the ego. I mean, unless it's in the middle of like sex or something like that, and then it's like, ha, you know. Actually, I hope it's not like that, but you get the idea. <laughs> or maybe I would, I'm not even going there. My mom's in the room. But you get the idea. I mean, unless there is an, um, uh, an unlimited blissful gain, uh, something that is perceived as gain, the ego is always looking at things is lacking. And even if that blissful gain, you know, keeps going pretty soon, it's going to jones for something else. It's not enough. The ego is constantly on the move. Hence the phrase I, I keep saying, it's, a, it's an ego, right? It's constantly moving. Or me-go. On the other hand, when we start looking at things from that broader big self perspective, we start recognizing that it's no longer going anywhere. It's absolutely still, perfectly content as is. 
And it's here that we begin to accept things as they are. It's here that we can start to recognize our relationship with our mind, with our thoughts, and our relationship with our feelings, those two subsets of mind, right? Thinking. And then when the thinking, when a thought is, is potent enough, it literally sinks into the body and we have an emotion. You, guys, you hearing me on this one? Okay, so you have a thought. It's big enough. It's powerful enough. It has a high enough energetic push or pull that it falls into the body and we actually feel it as what we call emotion. We have desires and we have fears. We have thoughts, feelings, desires, and fears. And those, those little, you know, it's like a four ring circus, if you will. That's ego. Ego is under that big top. Always. It's always playing in the realm of desire. It is always playing in the realm of fear. It's always in thinking. It's always in feeling. And if you really consider what's going on, you've got motion in each one of those four rings under the big top of ego. There's always something going on. Which is exactly why we sit still. When we sit still, what happens is there's this miraculous implosion and collapse of the big top. The theatrical experience dissolves like that. It's poof, gone. And what are we? We are universe embodied. Instead of the mind, which is doing all the thinking, which is doing all the, the feeling, which is doing all, I know that sounds funny, but the mind is what kind of instigates the thinking, the feeling, the desire, the fear, okay? When the mind references itself, when the mind looks at itself, what is born? Ego. But then, when we start getting into that space in between the thoughts, in between the desires, in between the feelings, in between the fears, we start seeing that there is more. What happens is mind itself and its self-reference, its egoic spin, starts getting transcended. We start moving past it. And the experience there is something that is utterly and completely still, utterly and completely at peace. There's no movement there. It's where movement comes from, just like music. <laughs> I, uh, my little girls are experimenting with music, uh, whether it's on a, a ukulele um, or violently hammering on dad's beloved guitar or, uh, you know, hitting a little xylophone or whatever. And they're starting to recognize um, that if you, keep, if you keep playing the notes, um, it's not really music, that you have to have a rest in between the notes. And although you probably never thought of him this way, Frank Sinatra, talk about a bodhisattva, he said, it's not so much the notes, it's what's between them, you know? I mean, he's really right. It's that space between the notes 
that actually gives us a sense of what the song is. And so when we allow ourselves to experience that space, to experience the rest, to experience the space between the notes, what actually begins to unfold is something that goes past the mind's reference to itself, which is ego, and we start experiencing no mind's reference to all things. And so what we have done is we have gone from a comparatively small, partial version of who we think we are and all the stories around our desires, around our fears, around our feelings, and around our thoughts. And we've moved, or I should say, opened into something that is much bigger, has much deeper capacity. It can actually face all of those fears. It can face, if you will, all of the stinging with absolute aplomb. It can be right there for all things. Instead of, as the cliche goes, being a human doing of the ego, we are now embodying a human being. We are an embodied human being who in the face of all things, as they arise, can respond generously. This is the move. This is kind of an explanation, you know, brief as it is, silly as it may, or, you know, trivial as it may seem. This is kind of how we burst through. This is how whatever is limiting us, actually, when we give it our attention, begins to kind of slip away into something that's no longer holding us. And we no longer need to hold it. We don't have to hold any stories about who we are, who we want to be, who we should be, who they should be, who they are. All of that stuff just becomes kind of the mishmash theatrical experience of the ego's big top, underneath the ego's big top. We then have a certain presence that we can carry or that carries us. So as a practice for this, this next week, or actually for the rest of your lives, <laughs> this is a little homework assignment. Presence yourself. Present, be present with that experience of movement. Recognize that tendency as indeed an addiction, almost like a childlike addiction, wanting more, 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 more. Or again, again, again. Okay? Instead, what we can do is just kind of stop. And in that stopping, questions arise and cease. Answers arise and cease. Thoughts arise and cease. Desires, fears, everything arises and ceases. And we know it will arise and cease. We know everything 
is temporary. We know that everything is in this interdependent grand dance. And we know that everything is reminding us directly of the infinite because everything is an embodied expression, indeed a beautiful expression of the infinite, including everything, everything that brings on lots of stinging. Why don't you pick the one that's burning? Yeah. So, yeah, the, you keep using the word infinite, mm. infinite smile, infinite embodiment. We are embodiment of the infinite. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. You like the word God better? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> infinite is that which has no boundary. So, for instance, if we were going to look in a, uh, in a great, like, reflector telescope or radio telescope or something like that, we would ultimately see space between the stars, right? It has no gravity. It has no, you know, molecular, there's just, it's just space, right? Yet we can't really, I mean, and we've got it here too. If we were going to take a microscope and went instead of externally, we went internally and did the same thing. We would also eventually, if we drill down enough, so to speak, we would find that you've got nuclei and then vast amounts of space before you hit that electron cloud, right? So in both directions, what's really the substrate of this entire universe, this entire universe, one song? What's there? the rests. In addition to the notes that make the song, those rests, that space, that's what we're trying to uh, kind of <laughs> catch when we sit still. We try to embody stillness and then lo and behold, if this miraculous thing doesn't happen, we start recognizing that space and that space doesn't stop. Any, it, it's everywhere all the time, it is capital I, infinite. So that's kind of why I'm using that, yeah, that word. I you were saying our body is the infinite. Like it is. It, well, your body, what is your body though? Is it, I mean, if, if I were to chop your skin up into little pieces, which I wouldn't do because I like you a lot, but if I were doing that, okay. I mean, what is your skin? Your skin is totally permeable, right? It looks like, you know, Beautiful Joanne, right? But if we really go to its core, it's not, I mean, it's not much of a boundary. There's a lot of space in there. Yeah. There's nothing solid. <laughs> right? Yeah, if you look at it, look at it. Exactly. And that's what this is. It's a shift in perspective. When we start looking at it like that, so to speak, when we start looking at it like that, it brings a whole new meaning to everything else. Now, think if you yourself physically are kind of permeable and so forth, let's talk about your desires. 
Are they solid? Must they be obeyed? Of course not, right? And so we start seeing that everything is a lot looser than we thought. We start seeing that there's this kind of vast openness that the only difference between this body I, I have here, which is it's carbon-based, right? Carbon-based life form. I'm getting all chemistry on you. <laughs> Forgive, but it's carbon-based life form. The difference between me and then this cool false ficus benjamina <laughs> is organization and energy. That's it. The only difference between you and this flickering flame right here is organization and energy. It's all an expression of the infinite. Or we could say it's an expression of spirit. All of this is spirit dancing. You ever seen The Matrix? Yeah, but I Yeah, yeah. Watch it again. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it, uh, the Wachowski brothers do a fantastic job of articulating a great deal of uh, Zen and other, they, they weave in some great philosophical points. Um, basically saying, this is illusory. We think it's all solid, but it's really not. And they put it into this great fictional account, of course, that's really sexy and violent and all those great things. They, they, they play it out for the ego even though what it's pointing to is something quite far beyond that. So give it a shot. Anybody else who wants to go see The Matrix 2, uh, just call Joanne. <laughs> yeah. I hope that helps. Okay, good, sure. Yeah? So if I understood you correctly, um, ego is made up of thoughts, feelings, desires, and fears? It's the thinker, the feeler, the desirer, and the fearer. And, so and the Fuhrer. <laughs> if one were to um, be witness to those and so take energy away from them and leave, they would they would be less apparent. Yes. If one witnesses the ego at play, uh -huh. the witness is not ego. What is it? The What's that? Pretty cool, huh? How do you relate to another person from there? How do you relate to another person from there. the witness? Yeah. How do you be in a relationship to another person? Yeah, but I mean, how exciting is this? Do you want a hug? Do you want a hug? How exciting is this? Well, screw you, man. I thought this was great. Oh, this was beautiful. We were sharing a moment there. And Lovely. But realistically speaking. I am being realistic. The witness. You relate to a, I'm, I'm hopeful that as practice actually begins to kind of settle in you that you relate to other human beings continually from the witness. And that it's the, I'm going to be like a zombie. No, 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 that's not the witness. That's the zombie. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's the dysfunctional witness. <laughs> that's the ego that thinks it's a witness. The ego that thinks it's the witness is for all intents and purposes, we could call it the zombie. Must have brains, you know. I mean, it's just really—it's it's horrific because it—it. It, I mean, I mean, I could go into that in some detail, and I won't. But essentially, an ego that thinks it's awake, an ego that thinks it's actually 
seeing the whole thing is nothing other than the master of ceremonies in the big top of ego with his top hat, his red coat and everything. He thinks he's in control. He's not in control. It's illusory. Relating to somebody from the witness is when you are relating to somebody from a place of deep presence continually. You aren't caught by what they do and what they say. Instead, you are constantly in a state of play. That was almost a rhyming couplet there. And I, right. So, uh, but, but you get the idea. It's where you are, when you are in a place of, another, another word we, we, we use to describe that is love. So when you are really, really in a loving space with another being, it's not something that's covetous and filled with desire and it's concomitant fear. It's actually in a place of total surrender. Utterly knowing that this is a temporary experience. And you know what? That just makes it all the more sweet. And we start to see ourselves in another. And we start to see them in us. And then we can actually carry that same type of energetic uh, aliveness into relationships that we have with all other beings. And that will always happen when we are approaching relationship from a deep place of presence, when we're totally witnessing. Yeah, and you know what? What's interesting, as much as I was totally giving you crap about this in the beginning of your, of your questioning, we started off in many cases with the teacher where we kind of test it out. It's like, okay, I'm, I mean, I know for me, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but, but when I first started going in to sit with my teacher, I was scared to death, absolutely scared to death. He saw right through him. I, I could not walk in there and carry off any type of lie. Wouldn't work. And what it got me to realize is how much I had built a life around hiding. And every one of those stories that I used to hide was technically a lie. So it's like I was in there emotionally stripped, you know, kind of in that space. And what did it do? It helped spawn that. I, the only way I could relate to him was through presence. I had to be 100% totally there. And then that practice doing it again and again, asking the questions again and again and over and over and over, you know, uh, ultimately um, kind of proved in, to, to be valuable, a, a valuable uh, uh, experiential laboratory, if you will. Mm -hmm. So next time we sit in Dokusan, just be all there. Mm -hmm. Next time you are with your daughter, next time you are with another, okay? Be fully there. Absolutely listen. Without the discursive thought, just listen. Let them in. And then give yourself back. And it works best without much wine. <laughs> usually, usually the wine gets in the way of that, that whole dance. Um, but uh, still it's worth Margaritas are okay.
We have a couple of minutes left. Does anybody want? Yes, sir. Two weeks ago, you were doing the colors. In the I was chart. doing the. We were talking about spiral dynamics in here. Yeah. Yes, yes. For some reason, I had the feeling that maybe I'm romanticizing them. Native Americans. Where were they? Let's let's go over it again real quickly. Basically, what we covered is we went through. Claire Graves and Don Beck came up with this theory, not so much to categorize people, but basically show evolutionarily speaking how we evolve. Okay, how we move up, how we move up a, a, a continuum. You know, you have, and every one of us knows that there are some people who are, you know, pretty ego bound, and other people who it's like they're utterly magical, right? And so, how do you kind of create? You know, uh, uh, you know, labels for these. So we started off at beige, and beige is the most primal. Okay, healthy beige means we know how to survive. Unhealthy beige means we are, you know, literally in kind of that desperate must find water, must find food type space. Okay, we then would move to purple, and healthy purple means we are in touch with the mystery of it all. Unhealthy purple might mean that we are utterly unable to do anything. We're not able to go outside the house. We know it's inappropriate because Mercury is in retrograde and by golly, once that happens, you know, and someone stepped on our crystals and you know, you get, you kind of get into that, that new age funk, okay? Uh, and then we go into red, which is power. Healthy red would be your ability to say, absolutely not, absolutely not. Unhealthy red might be absolutely not. Now you're dead. Okay? Uh, we then would move into blue. Healthy blue is uh, actually dealing quite well uh, with authoritative superstructure, whether it's a religion or a philosophy or a government. You actually, you know, you, you, you work very, very well uh, with this higher purpose orientation. Unhealthy blue, fundamentalism, okay? And then from blue, we go into orange. Orange shows up as being, a, it's about excellence, it's about competition, it's about success, it's about wealth, it's about materialism, okay? Unhealthy, you guys can all imagine how uh, uh, unhealthy competition or intense competition, intense materialism, those types of things can, can keep us down, but healthy orange is fully recognizing that, you know what, I'm a Jew and you're a Muslim and we can do business together to make this nonprofit work. Right? Okay? It doesn't always have to, orange, orange and its structure can actually, doesn't always have to be about, you know, wealth. It's about making sure that you, that, you know, something, you know, something gets done and it's done well. And if you're not going to do it, if you're not going to get on the same page, you can, Leave, thank you. Green is unhealthy, would be kumbaya. Uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna go, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna bathe, and I am gonna be, you know, the full-on hippie stereotype. Uh, it's green to the point of being fundamentalist green. You don't drive a Prius, therefore I hate you, okay? Um, healthy green is taking the bigger picture into account that we're all in this together. 
And what's really interesting, at, at those levels right there, every one of those levels is at war with each of the others. Greens can't stand orange because orange is, they're, they're greedy, they're selfish, you know? Uh, and the, the orange can't stand the greens because they, they smell, you know? And that the greens can be really nasty. Greens can be very, very nasty. Blue can't stand the godless orange and the even, you know, those pot-smoking godless greens, right? And, and so every one of them is in competition according to the theory uh, at that tier one level. Then we burst through. Every single wisdom tradition can have anybody at any one of those levels. So Native Americans could be at any one of those levels even though typically they're at the archaic or what we would call mythic or mythological level of spiritual development because they, they're not monotheistic. They tend to give tremendous power to the, you know, the bear and the, the, the sacred deer. And, the, and what we tend to do, especially greens, is romanticize ancient wisdom traditions as being more val valid or valuable than something that is actually higher up the spiral. So that's a really long way of answering your question, but I think this is really healthy for us as a Sangha to make sure that we're you know, kind of asking these questions, especially in relationship to that. It may sound hyper-intellectual, but it's actually incredibly valuable for us to each get a sense of you know, where on the continuum we as individuals are, are finding ourselves. So you, know, you, can find, you can find clear, clear evidence of people who uh, are having like, you know, the awakening, the, the stereotypical Zen Satori experience. They can have those experiences even though they might be you know, um, uh, a shaman of 300 years ago in uh, you know, a Hopi shaman, let's say. He has the Satori experience, but the Satori experience, the blast, the enlightenment experience tends to fixate us wherever our evolutionary uh, uh, center of gravity is. Isn't that weird? It like fixes, so if we're at purple, or, or we're, let's, say, let's say we're at red, or, or blue, we have uh, this, this huge awakening experience in, in church, you know? Hallelujah, praise God and everything. Then suddenly, I'm right, you're wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, we then go into yellow, and then turquoise, and then coral. Uh, and if you give if you give the theory much much uh, you know weight, the yellow starts recognizing interdependence. It starts recognizing systems. It starts recognizing flow. Okay. It also is uh, business in its orientation in many respects, but it's system. It's about how to take care of the entire spiral. And then when we add, get into turquoise, we add to that systems kind of deal, we add a deep spiritual component that is no longer about God, your God or mine. It's about a massively huge definition of God. And then we get into coral when groups start to actually coalesce around those new definitions, which is really what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Did I sprain anybody's brain? Are you guys okay? Then, <laughs> yes. You did sprain my brain. I did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It seems counterintuitive. 
Help, help you understand why it fixates us? Yes. Why does Satori fixate us? Potentially, yes. Yeah, well, because Satori doesn't mean you are still evolving unless you continue with the teaching, unless you continue with the teacher, okay? Unless you continue with the group. In other words, one of the major mistakes that somebody can make is they have the experience and then they're done. When the experience shows itself within within your the the thing we call Christie, when when suddenly when when lightning strikes, and there's a recognition of oneness, no self. Oh my God, there is no floor to stand on. Now what the hell am I going to do? Wait a minute, there's no I to do anything anyway. Ha! <laughs> right? There's all this. No, actually, what, what it tends to do is it tends to then invite ego to jump right back in and manage an experience that is inherently unstable, inherently vulnerable, inherently open, and ego then tries to close it down. Got it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's a beautiful light bulb. Let it keep shining on. Thank you very much.